was in a uh, meeting um, Tuesday of this week with the advisory board of the Center of Performing Arts at University of Mobile. And um, members of the advisory board and the faculty were there and they were talking about some of the new programs and some people from Integrity Music were there. And we got to talking about the times when we get off the page. And um, Roger Breland would call that in search of a lovely moment. Those moments when God seems to say, now let me just move in here for a while and do something. When we're off the page and we're really off the charts and that can be different moments for different people at different times. One of those moments for me tonight was knowing that the billboard that we've got drew somebody to our church. You know, I'm sure somebody, I don't know who it is, they wouldn't be a Sunday night person, but I'm sure somebody said, well, I don't know why we've got to spend money on billboards. Well, I tell you, there was one good reason in the baptistry tonight. And to also be reminded that God is holy. We need to get off of our page of making God in our image and start remembering that we were created in the image of God to be holy as He is holy. So, Father, we come tonight and we ask you to help us to know what it means to make Christ Lord of life. I'm not even sure that I am adequately equipped to fully comprehend nor communicate what that means. But I ask for your help as we look at these words from the Apostle Paul, penned nearly 2,000 years ago and yet as fresh and alive, as empowered by the Spirit today as they were the day Paul put ink to parchment. So God help the scriptures burn in our hearts tonight of who you are, what you've done, and what you expect of us. May we find you in a moment in this time in your word. Will you lift the ink off the page and burn it into our hearts so that we leave here thinking differently. In Jesus' name, amen. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, <clears throat> and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ 
and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. H.A. Ironside said, Paul was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making a way for a better one. He had come in contact with a divine person, the once crucified but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever, and for his sake, he counted all else but loss. There are 41 times in the Bible when you see the phrase, but God. It will follow with various words, but God said, but God did, but God saw. But every time you see that phrase, but God, it is a reminder to us that something is going on, but God intervened, or God spoke and confirmed, or God said something that he wanted his people to hear and to know. When God speaks, everything changes. And in the last days, he has spoken through his Son, He does not speak to us through angels and visions. He speaks to us through his Son and the Word of his Son. And we find the validity of every experience in our lives in the Word of God revealed by God through the Holy Spirit to tell us about the relationship that God the Father wants us to have with God the Son. Paul looked at his life and said everything in the past was rubbish or dung, or manure. Paul said it was refuge. It was just nothing. It was garbage. He said, I looked at all of these things, and it was useless waste. This is also a word that refers to the leftovers thrown out to the dogs. If you remember, Paul talked about those who were in the church of the false circumcision who were dogs and evil workers. He says, they think All of this is valuable. It's prime rib. It's choice morsels. But I say that all of these regulations and rules that I have followed trying to please God are as manure. They put value on it. I say it's nothing. Now, Paul did not say that his heritage was rubbish, was garbage. What Paul was saying was, depending on that, to please God was rubbish. He wasn't saying, well, I I wish I'd never been born of the tribe of Benjamin. I, I wish I'd never been taught like I was taught. I wish I hadn't been trained like I was trained. What he was saying is, I should have never depended on those things to find pleasure in God's eyes. That's what was rubbish to him that I would have had all of that and still been on a road to self destruction. 
because I was trusting in that and not in God alone. So here's what happened to Paul. Paul found out that everything that was once gain was now loss. Everything that he counted gain, everything that he would have put as a prophet was now a loss. What was gain was loss, and what was once an asset was now a liability. It was, in fact, keeping him from seeing who God really was. All of his positions and his titles and his degrees and his reputation and his training and his bloodline was all keeping him from seeing God as the one he needed through Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. What God wants us to see out of the life of Paul is that all of the things that we acquire, all of the things that we think give us an advantage before God are nothing compared to finding Him. You know, there, there, I'll, I'll be honest. There have been times when I have valued knowing certain preachers more than I have valued knowing Christ. There have been times when I've found it easier to talk about knowing preachers or people than to talk about knowing Christ. But you see, if I hadn't come to Christ, those people would have meant nothing to me anyway. It was through Christ that those relationships had meaning and had purpose. Whatever assets I had, being raised in a Christian home and being taken to church whether I wanted to or not, and, and being there and my dad watching me and sometimes my dad giving me a holy blessing when I got home uh, by the way I acted in church. If I hadn't met Christ... I had nothing to offer God. Paul says it was lost three times in verses 7 and 8. He uses the word count. That's a reckoning or an evaluating or a consideration term. Paul says, I, I've reckoned, I've considered, I've weighed it all in the balance. And, and here's what Paul had come to. Paul said, I counted up all that I had, plural, and I threw it away for all that I needed, singular. All these things that I had done, all these things that I had accomplished, it, it, plural, it was multiple. The list could have gone on and on and on about Paul's accomplishments and Paul's pedigrees. But he said, all of this stacked up over here was nothing compared to the singular knowing Christ as my Lord. So it's not the plurals, it's the singular that matters. Because if we don't get the singular right, the plural doesn't make any sense and has no value. The first thing is that lordship is a surrender to the person of Christ. I'm afraid some people get saved and get over it. For some reason, I could never get over the fact that God saved me. I still haven't gotten over that. 
you know, because I know what I'm like on my bad days. And, and the fact that God would love me enough to save me when he had every right to condemn me to hell is, is amazing to me. But some people get saved and get over it. And it's kind of like the story of the little boy who uh, fell asleep and fell out of bed. And his mom came in there. He was crying. And his mother said, son, what's wrong? He said, I think I fell asleep too close to where I got in. <laughs> you know what? That happens to some church members. They fall asleep too close to where they've gotten in. One of the things that you will hear us talk about a lot in the coming months is faith Sunday school and assimilating people into the life of our church. That is important to us because 85% of new church members drop out of church within their first six months of joining. 85%. Southern Baptist average is that eight out of 10 people who join a church never come back after the day they join. Eight out of 10. Now you see, Paul says we're to present every man complete in Christ. So if we're going to do that, guess what? Now, Stephen's got primary responsibility to do that, but I want to tell you, if you're a Sunday school teacher and you're not assimilating people into your class and loving people and caring for people, you're not doing what God called you to do as a Sunday school teacher. You need to change what you're doing if you're not doing it. Because we can't hire enough staff to do what this church needs to do. We just can't. If somebody is enrolled in Faith Sunday School and you see their name there, your job is to sick them and go after them. Not just say, well, maybe they'll show up one day. Hey, babies need to be nurtured and fed and led, and they won't come on their own. No baby gets anywhere by itself. And a new Christian is not going to mature in their faith on their own. They need help from the body. And our responsibility as a church family and for every leader in this church and every member of this church is to help assimilate people into the life of this church so they don't get lost in the crowd. And that is very easy to do in any church. And so I'm just going to give you a little encouragement there that surrendering to the person of Christ means being committed to what Christ is committed to. And that is, he said to Peter, feed my sheep. And that means that we're also to be concerned about the sheep that didn't make it to the feeding time today. Somebody asked me earlier, where's so-and-so? And I said, well, they're gone to ball games and they're gone to the beach and they're gone everywhere in the world but here. I know where they are every weekend, but they're just not here. You see, our responsibility is not to say, oh, well. Our responsibility is to go and say, brother, if you don't change your patterns, one day you're never going to darken the door of the church again, and then your children are going to grow up, and they're not going to have any heritage. They're not going to have any moorings. They're not going to have any grounding. And when they rebel, don't come asking us to fix what you messed up. Amen? Knowing, to know by personal experience. Now, see, this knowing that Paul talks about in this surrender to the person of Christ is not intellectual knowledge, it's intimate knowledge. There is an intimacy. Not just knowing in his head, but knowing in his heart. Turn just a few pages to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 18. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, you see, you can know a lot of stuff about God, but intimate knowledge with God gives you an awareness of your inheritance, and you start living according to it. Intimate knowledge of God gives you an awareness of his power, and you start walking in it. Not just know, oh yeah, that's available, and somebody out there probably can have that, but that I can have it, and I can walk in that. Paul says, I know from personal experience. Now, turn back to Philippians. The key is not Jesus Christ, the Lord, because he is the Lord, but verse 8, Jesus Christ, my Lord. A personal surrender to the Lordship of Christ. An intimate relationship. He's my Lord. He's not the distant Lord of heaven and earth, but he is my Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who ever lives to make intercession for me, who died so that I could be freed from the power of sin, who died so I could be freed from the pain of death, who died so I could be set free from my past. All of that, he is my Lord. He's not just Lord because he's your Lord. He's my Lord. It's personal. Now, how do I develop an intimate relationship with Christ? This is no-brainer stuff, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Number one, you have to spend time in personal Bible study. You have to spend time in personal Bible study. Now, that means more than reading a quarterly for Sunday school. I got a note from one of our college girls last year. When, If you remember the beginning, I think it was the beginning of last year, I ask people to read through the Proverbs every day, one proverb a day, read it through through the month. And I got a note from her at the end of the year, and she said, I'm going to keep doing this. And she said, she just, I mean, it's a two-page, just a wonderful note, just saying, you know, this, these are the things God taught me by reading through the Proverbs. Listen, folks, Proverbs is a book that says two things. You're either wise or you're a fool. What you do shows that you're wise, or what you do shows you're a fool. And you, there's no in-between. I mean, he didn't say there are some people who are kind of wise. He said, you're wise or you're a fool. And so she, she has taken that as a personal goal to read and study the Scriptures. We need to have personal Bible study, not just come and sit in Sunday school and come to church and let the preacher and the Sunday school teacher tell us what the Bible says, but to read it for ourselves, to be familiar with it for ourselves. So that when we meet Habakkuk in heaven, we won't be surprised that he had a book. <laughs> Secondly, spend time in personal prayer. According to one survey, the average pastor in America spends two minutes a day in prayer. Now, if the average pastor spends two minutes a day in prayer, what do you think the average church member's doing. Prayer is our connection with God, where we talk to God and God talks to us. God talks to us out of His Word. We intercede for others through prayer. We pray Scripture back to God. Prayer is not a gimme list, and we spend all of our time telling God what we want. Prayer is communion with God, honoring who He is, confessing our sins, 
And the last thing we should ever do in prayer is pray for ourselves. We should pray for others and intercede for other people. Prayer is a vital link. It may be the weakest thing in the average church is prayer. We talk about it. There are thousands of books on it. But it's hard to make time to do it, isn't it? The old saying says, Satan fears the weakest Christian on his knees. Thirdly, we are to surrender to God's will. We sang that just a few moments ago. I don't know if you caught that. Today, I choose to give my yes to you. Today, I choose to give my yes to you. You see, surrendering to the will of God is not, I will do it once I know what it is. Surrendering to the will of God is, God, I'm committed to doing your will, now what is it? It's, yes, Lord, I've reported for duty, I'm surrendered to your will, now what do you want me to do? In light of the fact that I'm available, how do you want to use me? Someone asked me not long ago, how much longer I'm going to be here? I said, well, I don't know. I'd like to retire here. But I said, I'll tell you this, if God tells me to go, I'll go. Because my commitment to God is to his will. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere and not be in his will. To either stay too long or to leave too soon. I wouldn't want to be out of his will. Because I never want to be in a place or politic for a place or position myself for a place that when I stand in that pulpit, God says, okay, big boy, you put yourself here. Now you get yourself out of it because I'm not here with you. See, it's very important to me that I be where God wants me to be. This is Sunday night, so I'm just going to talk to you for a moment. I got friends that think I'm crazy for staying in Albany for 15 years. I have people that call me and say, man, you, you know, you're wasting the best years of your life. You could be in a church three times this Sunday. And I've had friends try to recommend me to those kind of places. But, you know, there are people with bad attitudes in bigger churches. And there are carnal people in bigger churches. And there are issues in bigger... It's not the size of the church. It's the heart of the people. I told one guy, one guy said, well, you you know, you could be preaching to 5,000 people on Sunday morning. I said, yeah, I know the church you're talking about. They can't get 50 to come back on Sunday night. I've got a better church than the guy preaching to 5,000 because he hadn't got 50 people committed enough to even come back on Sunday night. So if you're going to measure depth of a church... The one I'm at is better than the one he's at. He just thought he was at a great church because he had a big size and he just filled up his mind and his ego that he was preaching to that many people, but nobody wanted to come back twice. Folks, it's never wrong to be in the will of God. It's not always easy. It's not always convenient. It is many times costly, but it's always right 
to be in the will of God. And if I'm in the will of God, then I'm walking with God and he's walking with me. And I want to be in his will. I want to walk in surrendered submission to his will. So when he says go, I go. When he says stay, I stay. When he says move, I move. When he says wait, I wait. So that I'm not ahead of him or behind him. I'm walking in step with him. All right, let's move on. Lordship is submission to the purpose of life. Let's just go through these quickly because of time. First of all is justification. Verse 9 is a summary of the book of Romans in one verse. Verse 9 of chapter 3 summarizes the entire book of Romans in one verse. It deals with the heart of salvation. There are two kinds of righteousness. One righteousness comes from man, and that's not a righteousness at all. And one comes from God, and that is righteousness. James Boyce says, we see God's power in nature. We see God's principles in the law, but we see God's personality in Jesus, and it is infused with righteousness. Much of the teaching of the Bible tells us that man cannot please God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. If I am justified, I am justified by grace through faith. I am not justified by the deeds of my flesh or the sincerity of my heart. I am justified by Christ. Secondly, sanctification. To know him. That was his goal. If you'd write down by that verse, 2 Peter 3.12, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we think we've got to add supplements to our spiritual diet, a lot of times that means we don't think that Christ is sufficient. And so we just keep getting all these additives and all these things that we think, this will help me and this will help me and this will help me. But Paul found all he needed in Christ. Dr. Havner used to say, it's one thing to say Jesus is all you want until he's all you've got. And then you find out he's all you ever really needed. God didn't give you victory. God gives you Jesus. God's not trying to give you victory. He's trying to give you Jesus. God didn't die to give you a formula. He died to give you himself. He did not come to give us procedures. He came to give us a person. Now, this last one's a big one. God doesn't give revival. He gives Jesus, and Jesus is the revival. You see, because if you're looking for an event or a moment or an experience, you can miss Jesus. But God doesn't give revival. He gives Jesus, and Jesus is the revival. When I get full of Jesus, I'm going to live a revived life. There's an old song. I don't even know if this is even in the Baptist hymnal anymore. More about Jesus would I know. Do you, do you know if that's even in there? I don't know if it's in there. I just thought about it this week while I was working on this sermon. Here are the words of that song. More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. 
more, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of His saving fullness see. More of His love who died for me. Number one, I die to everything Christ died to. That's Romans chapter 6. I die to everything Christ died to. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do we not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I die to everything Christ died for. I live for everything Christ lived for. If I'm going to be surrendered to his person, I live for everything he lived for. What did he live for? He lived for the Father's pleasure. And thirdly, I hope in all God has promised me. Colossians chapter 1, chapter 3 and verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Now, I'm going to give you a sentence, and it's going to take you a little chewing on. Don't chew it on it now because you'll miss some fill-in-the-blanks, and you'll get frustrated. The key to sanctification is a race one, run, and one, I might add. The key to sanctification is a race won by right objectives relentlessly pursued. If I'm going to cooperate with God and what He wants to do in my life, then I have to have the right objectives relentlessly pursued. I can understand historical facts. I can understand the theological necessity of those truths, but if I don't appropriate and apply those truths to my life, then I have not relentlessly pursued God being who He wants to be in me. The power of the resurrection does two things. Number one, it regenerates us. For without Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sin. It regenerates us. Secondly, it releases us from the power of sin and death. And then suffering. Justification, sanctification, and suffering. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now what does the phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings, mean? Well, before we get to that part of the outline, let me just say it doesn't mean bunions or ingrown toenails. It doesn't mean you ate too much and you don't feel good. That's not the fellowship of his suffering. Some of what people say, you know, I'm just bearing my cross. No, no, that's, that, you're right. That is your cross. It's not his. You put that cross on yourself. The fellowship of his sufferings, number one, Jesus suffered the attacks from the devil. How do I know that I'm sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings? Because the devil's after you. Jack Taylor used to say, if the devil's not bothering you, it's because he never bothers anybody going in the same direction he's going in. The fellowship of his sufferings is Jesus suffered the attacks of the devil. Secondly, Jesus suffered the rejection of man. 
The religious leaders rejected him. Most people walked away from him when he laid down the cost of discipleship. If we are worried about what people think about us, we will never share in the fellowship of his sufferings. He was rejected and despised of men. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be applauded. Is that what the Scripture says? No, it says, will be persecuted. You see, folks, some of the signs that you're walking with God is who doesn't like you. You've got to figure out who likes you and who doesn't. If godly people are applauding you, that's one thing. But if carnal people are applauding your choices, you're not sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Thirdly, Jesus suffered according to the will of God. He said, not my will, but thine be done. He told us to pray that way, too. He shared and suffered according to the will of God. Are you committed to the will of God even if it costs you? Number four, Jesus suffered for the redemption of the lost. Now, we cannot pay the price for anybody's sin. But it is our job to be witnesses of these things, the Scripture says. And so I need to understand what my relationship with Christ involves. So I've got ten things there, and I'm just going to fill in the blank, let you do your own study. My relationship with Christ involves, number one, suffering with Christ. Romans 8, 17 is a verse you'll see three times in this outline, I think. It says, if we share in his glory, we must also share in his sufferings. You, you can't have his glory without also sharing in his suffering. So first of all, we suffer with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 6. We died with Christ. Romans 6, 8. We were buried with Christ, Romans 6, 4. We've been made alive with Christ, Colossians 2, 13. We've been raised with Christ, Colossians 2, 12 and 3, 1. We've been made joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. We've been glorified with Christ, Romans 8, 17. We've been enthroned with Christ, Colossians 3, 1. We are reigning with Christ, 2 Timothy 2.12 and Revelation 20 and verse 4. Now, if this is where I am positionally with Christ, is there any problem in my mind that I should submit to the Lordship of Christ? There shouldn't be. Is there any problem in my mind that I should submit to his purpose for my life? No, there shouldn't be. Why? Because I've been crucified, I've died, I've been buried, I've been made alive, I've been raised, I've been made a joint heir, I've been glorified and enthroned with the living Christ. That means that whatever he wants for me is good enough for me. Finally, lordship is the only worthy pursuit in life. That I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Literally, I think that reads resurrection out from among. It's, if my memory and my study serves me correctly, this is the only time 
that resurrection is defined like this in the Bible. It's a unique way that he talks about resurrection, out from among the dead. What Paul was saying is, I am a living man in a dead world. On my way to a life of eternity in heaven with Christ. But I'm in a world of dead people who are dead in trespasses and sin on their way to an eternal hell. I am a living man out from among the dead. Paul wanted to live in such a way that he would be recognized as a resurrected man, as a changed man. Now let's just ask a question. Would you have any trouble recognizing a resurrected man in a graveyard? No. I mean, when Jesus came out of the grave, nobody said, I wonder who that is. Everybody knew it was Lazarus. Resurrected. Paul says that I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Now I'm dead to myself, but I've been raised up in Christ. And in this world of dead people in trespasses and sin, I want to live such a life I want to have such a witness that I look like the only live man among dead men. That that is how people see me. They see the difference in my life. So how do I do that? Number one, by focus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Chuck Swindoll says he wanted to spend the balance of his years knowing Christ more intimately, drawing upon his resurrection power more increasingly, entering into his sufferings more personally, and being conformed to his image more completely. I forget Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I follow. I forget and then I follow. That word attain means to cross a goal line. Paul had a goal in mind. He said, I want people to look at me now as if I'm a resurrected person by the way I live. I want my life to exhibit resurrection power. I don't want to struggle and stumble along and stump my toe every day and get up and brush my knees off because I keep falling down and falling down and blowing it and blowing it. Paul says, I want to live in such a way that when people see me and when people hear me and when people watch me, that they see me living in resurrection power. That's what Paul wanted. It's not a bad thing for us to pray about right now either. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would help us who are dead to ourselves be alive in Christ. That we would look like resurrected men in a graveyard of a world lost and going to hell. That we would be walking lights, that we would be displays of your glory and your grace, that we would give evidence of change that has transformed us from the inside out. God help us. 
that we know who we are and then act accordingly. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you, who's on the throne of your heart tonight? There's only room for one. God shares his glory with no one. There's only room for one. And either you are on the throne of your heart tonight or Jesus is on the throne of your heart. Either you're running the show and making the decisions or Christ is running the show and making the decisions. It can't be just Jesus when it works out to your advantage. Anybody who would die for me and be crucified for me, anybody who would rise again so that I might have power that I would never know otherwise, anybody that would one day let me reign with him and see his glory, anyone who would take me from the pig pen and call me a son of God, a child of the king, is worthy of everything I've got to give him. He's worthy of more than my Sundays and my quiet times and my service. He is worthy of my life. Whether that's in a classroom or on an athletic field or in a business or at home, he's worthy. It is right that he becomes the purpose of our life. And all the things we do to put food on our, food on our tables are just tools that we have so that we can be Jesus in this world. So that people can see Christ in us. I was just to, for Heather to play and Mark to play, and just I just want him to play softly and.